So if you were to make a list of the eight most important things you want in your life, what would they be? Think. Eight. Think. New Year's resolutions, a lot of people do that as January 1st comes around. But let me ask you this. If you could make a list right now of the eight things you want most in your life, what would they be? Would any of them have been poverty of spirit? Joyful mourning? Meekness? Hunger and thirst for righteousness? How about mercy? Or purity in heart? Or peacemaking? Or the joyful acceptance of persecution? Anyone? I wonder if even one of those would make our list. And yet... These are the eight things that Jesus says we need most. This is his list of the great eight for our lives. We have a lot to learn. Because culture does not promote these eight virtues we will look at. Culture promotes, quite frankly, the opposite of most of these. So why is it that Christ promotes these and what is so good about them? This is our second week in the series, Partakers of the Divine Nature. And this comes from first, Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, where Peter says he's given us his great and ex, his precious promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 says, Those who receive Christ, who believe in his name, he's given the power to become children of God, who are born... Not of, what is it? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is partaking in the divine nature. Romans eight chapters, uh, Romans eight verse seventeen. He says that you are children of God, and if children of God, you are co heirs with Christ, and through your sufferings you will be glorified. 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 Then later in that chapter, he says, look, we know that the Lord works all things together for good for those who love the Lord. But then he goes on to say, those he is called, he is chosen, he is chosen, he is justified. He goes on in the, the end of the list, he says, and he has glorified. What does this mean, except that to glorify us means he's inviting us to become partakers of his divine nature. Now, Clarifications are needed because we have some heresies out there that say you become a god. You are a god. Let's say this real quick. I'm a created being. You're a created being. God is not a created being. That will never, ever change. He will never become created, nor will I ever become uncreated. That is a gap you cannot change, you cannot close. What do we mean by partakers in the divine nature is that we mean we are participation, or participators. We are looking at participation in God, not absorption into God. We're not being swallowed up into the all light, the all powerful being, and boof, there goes Pastor Brandon, he got absorbed into God. No. No, we remain distinct, and yet we are included in his divine nature. This is about participating in God's nature, not becoming it. 
Uh, so another way to put this is we share, we share in God's likeness, but we do not share his essence. That is separate and distinct from us, but we do share in his likeness. And so that's what we're looking at by partakers of the divine nature. It started with Epiphany, the Sunday after Epiphany, because Christ manifests to the world that God has come. We want, as we receive him, God to manifest to the world that Christ is in us. And so we want to become partakers in his divine nature. So last Sunday, first Sunday after Epiphany, we looked at the baptism of Christ. And we saw that at the baptism, the Holy Trinity was revealed, the Father speaking to him, the Son coming on him like a dove, and there the three in one, and the three in one are working in us to bring us into uh, participating in his divine nature. As Christ himself, the divinity represented, becomes also humanity. Humanity and divinity are mutually indwelling in Christ, so that in Christ, as we're baptized into him, we can mutually indwell in God and God in us. It's a mutual indwelling. We're going to end the sixth week after Epiphany with the transfiguration of Christ in Matthew 17. Because as his glory, as the glory of God is manifest through Christ's flesh, so too, if we will walk in the way Christ teaches us, God's glory will be manifest through us before the world. It's possible for us to be partakers of his divine nature in this life. There's no other reason that we're on earth. We were saved to walk in the likeness of God. Otherwise, why are you here? Why didn't God just whoop, rapture you right when you got saved? Why? Because this soul needs a lot of work. And if I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever and ever, I want to start gazing now and getting my soul familiar with the divine nature so that I'm at home in his presence. Well, we're going to look at how Jesus talks about this. So between last week and the end of the series, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Four weeks, because this is where Jesus teaches us how to walk in the divine nature. All right? Okay. So the Sermon on the Mount, I want to, I want to quote to you guys real quick. What is the sermon about in a nutshell? So we can preview as we go into it. What is it about in a nutshell? There's a, there's a wonderful book on the sermon by Jonathan Pennington. Uh, I don't remember the title of it, but Jonathan Pennington has really enriched me as I've been reading this um, about the Sermon on the Mount. He, this is how he summarizes the sermon. He says, The sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. This is the question. How can we experience true Human flourishing. What is happiness, blessedness, shalom? And how does one obtain and sustain it? The sermon focuses on being a certain kind of person, on learning practical wisdom, and a way of being in the world that will result in one's flourishing. Jesus comes and says, I created you to flourish. You are withering in sin. Here I am bringing blessedness back into the world. My teachings are to show you how to do that. You don't keep my teachings to get to heaven. You keep my teachings 
so that you can participate in the divine nature. And this is what we were meant to dwell in. So, we're going to look at the Beatitudes tonight. Let's read them, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what they are, and then we'll go through them. One at a time. These are the eight. This is what Jesus would put on our list. The eight most important things for our life. Matthew 1, or 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's how Jesus begins his sermon. So, this is Jesus' core teaching, the sermon. We see that after he's baptized, he doesn't preach before, he doesn't heal anyone before, he doesn't do any miracle before, but once he's baptized and the Holy Trinity is manifest in him, he then begins to preach and heal and do miracles. And the summary of his teaching is in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes, repent, 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 because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent, change your ways, turn about face, come back to God. It is at hand. That is what he taught. Why? Why should we repent? The Beatitudes tell us why. Because Christ's teaching when we repent and come to him and his teaching, they teach us how to flourish. They teach us how to become who we were meant to be, living in the divine presence. This is why. Then he'll teach us how. How do we repent? That's what the rest of the sermon looks like. It's a long exposition on this is what repentance looks like. So we're looking at Jesus' core teaching here. Notice that he, before he, he, he starts the message, it says that he climbs a mountain and the twelve disciples come up to him. Matthew has gone out of his way to make the reader think of Moses and the Exodus up to this point. 
with the birth of Jesus being like Moses and a tyrant trying to kill him and him coming out of Egypt and him crossing over the Jordan River like Joshua and the Israelites did and his 40 days in place of 40 years of tempting in the wilderness. Matthew has shown us that Jesus is the newer and greater Moses and now he says that Jesus went up the mountain. There's no mountains in Galilee. There's hills. Matthew is not mistaken. He's there. He's a witness. He is intentionally provoking. He's triggering in the reader the image of Moses going up the mountain to give the law to Israel. Here's Jesus going up the mountain, the newer, truer, greater Moses, giving not that law from Mount Sinai, but this new teaching from the Mount of Beatitudes. This, brothers and sisters, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, this is the new Mount Sinai. This is the Torah for the church. This is our teaching. And if the Jews could memorize the Torah, and if that was required of all children, can we not spend a little bit of our lives in the Sermon on the Mount, know its teachings, devote ourselves to practicing and following what Jesus teaches us in it? Oh, you bet especially when we look at how Jesus opens this and says, this, by the way, this is the invitation to the way you were meant and created to live. Well, how about that? Christ is the newer, greater Moses. The 12 disciples, not the 12 tribes, the 12 disciples come around him and receive the teaching. And here we see the disciples who distinguish themselves from the multitudes by coming up the mountain with Jesus as a model for you and I. This is how we receive Christ's teaching. We distinguish ourselves from those who simply hear as those who do, as those who practice the ways of Jesus. If he walks that way, we walk that way. If he talks that way, we talk that way. The disciples model for us this call to step beyond the mere Christianity. No, no play on C.S. Lewis's work there at all, but we're not just Christians in name. We're Christians because we devote ourselves to his teachings, which sets us apart from the world in the valley below. Okay, so then he opens his mouth and he says, Blessed, 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 blessed. Blessed, over and over. Blessedness is what we were created for. The Garden of Eden, God blessed everything he made. We were living in this state of flourishing with God. But we surrendered all that in sin. And instead we took upon curses and withering and wilting and death and sin and disease. And we hailed the devil as Lord of all. But then Christ... Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, ends with a curse. And if you're reading the New King James Version, it actually, the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. As if that neatly sums up what what everything since the fall of Adam and Eve is about is curse. And then you turn to Matthew, the Messiah is born, and now his first sermon, the first word of this sermon is no curse, blessedness. Blessedness. This is the invitation to the Garden of Eden, humans and God dwelling together again. So it's in the teachings of Christ that we find blessedness, not in sin, not a chance. That is not where blessedness lies. It lies here in Christ's teaching. 
Okay, so this word blessed, it's the Greek word makarios. Makarios. I bring it up because it's a hard word to translate. Some translations actually translate it happy. Instead of blessed are the poor in spirit, it says happy are the poor in spirit. And that has always kind of baffled me, because um, I don't always think of the poor in spirit as happy. <laughs> kind of downer sometimes, but this, this just shows our misunderstanding of what Jesus is teaching. Uh, makarios, makarios is an interesting word because it doesn't actually have a single English word to help translate. Jonathan Pennington, whom I mentioned, goes through this really long chapter dissecting this word makarios and shows that the best word he can come up with is flourishing, which just makes for awkward reading. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek. But that's the idea. Is that, and, and his point is, if we don't clarify that the Greek makarios here isn't just blessed, but it's flourishing and happiness and many other ideas of fruitfulness, if we don't clarify that, then what we end up doing is we end up reading these as conditions. If I'm poor in spirit, then God will actively bless me. If I mourn, God will actively bless me. If I meek, he'll actively bless me. He's saying that's not what's being presented here. Makarios is not an action where God says, because you did that, I will bless you. He's saying that makarios is an observation about what blessedness looks like. So if God has blessed you, then you're in a state of blessing, and from that state of blessing, you live poor in spirit. You live mourning. You live in meekness and so forth. Or another way to think of it, like this, makarios is not a verb. It's not God blessing. It's an adjective describing the condition of the person who possesses these virtues. And that's important to see because I don't think of the poor in spirit as flourishing or blessed or happy. I don't think of them as makarios. I think of them as, maybe you'll get your act together one day. And so all of them, those who mourn, we're so uncomfortable with that. What is, what is Jesus doing here? Um, one more um, to clarify Makarios, maybe this helps, is in Psalm chapter 1, you might remember that the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but the Jews translated it into Greek 150 years before Jesus, and that Greek translation is what our New Testament writers, the early church, read the Greek translation. And so it seems no doubt that Matthew has this um, word makarios, when he's using it, he's because Jesus spoke in Aramaic, so Matthew's translating into Greek. And why is he using the word makarios? Because in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and so forth, but the blessed man is one who studies the word of God, who meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree that, in short, flourishes. That word blessed is makarios in the Greek translation. Matthew is intentionally showing us that Jesus is teaching this is Psalm 1 unfolding in the life of the church. So if you imagine Psalm 1, that blessing, that's what the blessedness here is describing. You are like that tree planted by rivers of water. Your leaf does not wither. You're bearing fruit in its season. And all that you do, you prosper. Okay. So now we know what the word blessed means, makarios. It refers to our flourishing. Um, what are these, though? What are these eight things? The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. What are these? They are virtues. These are the virtues of Christ-likeness. 
They're the virtues of Christ-likeness. In other words, Christ himself, what was his character made of? His character was made of these eight virtues. And in everywhere we look, when we look at these virtues, you will see Christ somewhere in the Gospels demonstrating this, these traits. These are the virtues of Christ-likeness. Now, virtues do not come through my effort. They don't come from my effort. Jesus is not saying, if you work really hard, you will get my likeness in your life. Virtues are grown as we cooperate with the grace of Christ. Did you hear that? When we cooperate with the grace of Christ, virtues are grown in us, his virtues. So, his grace comes to us, it cleanses us, it saves us and empowers us, and we can say, thanks, and we take the ticket and we move on. Or we can say, wow, your grace, I want to get involved in that, and we let it work in our lives, and we participate with God's energy in us. We participate with his energy in us, and when we participate, his energy grows his character in us. The virtues begin to grow in us. So virtue grows when we cooperate with God's grace. So, put this in other ways. This doesn't, this, virtues are not about me and my neatness. They're about my nearness to Christ. That's where virtues come from. Not my neatness, but my nearness to him. This is not my imitating Christ, like what would Jesus do? Well, he would uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, so I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not imitation of Christ, but participation with Christ. I hunger with him for righteousness. And, and, and then finally, virtues are not what we do, but they're ultimately what we become. I love how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity puts it. He says, any average Joe can serve the tennis ball, over the net at least once. But it takes a true tennis player with all of the qualities of being a good tennis player to get that ball over the net every time. I might occasionally and accidentally be virtuous. That's not virtue, though. I stumbled upon a good deed. Virtue is what we become as the grace of Christ, as we cooperate with the grace of Christ, and it grows in us. Okay. So we're getting closer. Like we're seeing what these beatitudes are. They're inviting us into flourishing. They're um, they're showing us the virtues of Christ, likeness, so that they can grow in our lives. And now the last important thing to see before we get into them is that these virtues are connected like a chain, or some say it's like a ladder. The first beatitude is the most important. It's there for a reason because that's the starting point. We must start poor in spirit. Before all else, we must start poor in spirit. If you're not poor in spirit, you will not gain any of these other virtues. We must start poor in spirit. And then you move on to blessed mourning and then to meekness. And each one is successive. And it's not only successive, but it reaches you, it brings you higher and closer to the actual character of Christ himself. So that what you ultimately end up with is persecution, and that is the highest participation with the virtues of Christ, the joyful acceptance of persecution. There's nothing higher. Because humans in their own strength don't rejoice at persecution. But those in Christ do. So it's a ladder that brings us closer to Christ-likeness. So, um, okay, so, this is... Virtue. It comes from God, and 
We attain virtue by participating with him in the divine nature. It, it, it brings us in oneness with him. So let's take a look at them. Um, oh, wait, the ladder, yes. Uh, so as we reach the top of the ladder, there's three results. Uh, persecution, that's one result. It's also the highest... Okay, you might have noticed, we say there's eight virtues here, but you might count nine blesseds, and persecution gets two. It's like this. Matthew, or Jesus, through Matthew, is saying to us, there are eight virtues plus one. So the last one, in other words is doubled up. Persecution is doubled up because it's the highest virtue, but it also is pointing at the result of virtues. When I gain Christ's likeness, I will receive persecution. It's one of the results. Second, um, there's, there's, uh, the second result is salt. If I receive these virtues, if I'm living these virtues, I will become salt to the earth. I will be a preservative, holding evil at bay, and I will bring seasoning to the world so that they get to see what God tastes like. And then the third result is that we become light. Shining light for the weary travelers who are in darkness to find refuge in Christ. And that light also bringing glory to our Father in heaven. These are the results. All right, We become very important in the earth in God's eyes. And brothers and sisters, the church has not been salt very well. At least in the American, or at least in the West. Europe, America, we have not been good at being salt of the earth nor have we been good at being the light of the world. We're very good at letting people know what we think politically or what we stand morally, but we have not done a good job embodying the virtues of Christ-likeness. Perhaps Christ will give us mercy and lead us up the ladder and that we can again recover being salt and light in the world. All right, let's go through them now. Here we go, the good stuff. The eight virtues of Christ-likeness. Number one, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is humility. St. John of Chrysostom, one of the earliest preachers uh, that we have records of, he, in the third century, told us that, uh, fourth century, he told us that Humility is the mother of all virtues. It's the mother of all virtues. Because it's through humility that we acquire the rest. Just like it's opposite, pride is the mother of all sin. And it's through pride that the devil fell. And it's through pride that Adam and Eve fell. Poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit are humble. This is a humility now, that doesn't mean we're just going around, I'm not good at anything. Like, it's not some false humility. What humility looks like is dependence on God. It means I don't have it in myself. In fact, on my own, I have absolutely nothing. I have nothing good. I have nothing to offer. But God has everything. And he's the one that I need to receive from. We're paupers. We're poor people rattling the penny in our coffee can saying, Lord, please, something. That's poor in spirit. And by the way, when we gather together for church... And when you are online and watching church because you can't get here yet, we are acknowledging as we gather together, as we come together, as we come to him, we're acknowledging that we're poor in spirit because we come hoping to receive something from him who has everything. This is dependence on God. If you were an independent person, if you were rich in spirit, 
You would be like everyone else who goes bird watching on Sunday mornings because that's your church. That's how you feel close to God and saying, yep, we're doing pretty good. We just admire creation. I'm spiritual but not religious. That's not poor in spirit. The poor in spirit look for a father and a mother to teach them, a God to feed them. That's poverty of spirit. So it's dependence. Think of also maybe the image of a puddle. Water always seeks the lowest place. And that's what poverty in spirit is. It's like a puddle before God, and I can't get any lower. And if I could sink beneath the rocks of the earth before you, Lord, I would sink further on our face. That is poverty of spirit. St. John Kronstadt, he was a 19th century Russian priest. Um, he, he had this quote that just it nails it. This is what he says. Where there is humility, a recognition of one's own destitution, one's poverty, and one's wretchedness, there is God. Where there is humility, there is God. Where there is recognition of one's destitution, there is God. Where there is poverty, there is God. Where there is one's wretchedness, there is God. But when I come in the door... Oh, I've got some good things. God's like, well, I have other people who need my grace. Number two, joyful mourning. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Why do I call it joyful mourning? Because it needs to be clarified that the Christian mourning is not like the mourning of the world. Paul tells us this. 2 Corinthians 7.10 that the godly, there's godly grief, which produces repentance and leads to salvation without regret. But then there is worldly grief, which produces death. Worldly grief is despair. It's despair over our nation. It's despair over the world. It's despair over the condition of our lives and our families and saying, it will never change and there's no hope. That's despair. That is not Christian mourning. What this is, is it's mourning over our sins and over the sins of others. Mourning over our sins. This is a virtue, brothers and sisters. Christ said, mourning over sins is a virtue. So this doesn't mean I'm someone who's in touch with my emotional side and I just weep over everything I see. Oh, little bird got hurt. You, you might, that might be mourning. But mourning starts with a look at my own sin and it grieves me that I have become the monster that I am. That I have chosen wickedness over Christ. Mourning over my sin And then, only then, mourning over the sins of the world and over others. And when we see people suffering in their addictions and in pain, and what's happening, it grieves us, and we mourn over it. Just as Christ, when he rode in on the donkey to Jerusalem, said he looked out over Jerusalem and mourned over it, or he wept over the city, because they could not recognize. He saw the destruction coming to the city, and he mourned. Our mourning, though, has hope. Our mourning comes with joy. Actually, this mourning is so unique to the Christian that the early church fathers had to invent, this often happened in Christianity, by the way, we had to invent words because the Greek language was not complex enough to convey what we were trying to communicate. Paul uh, created words all the time to talk about us being crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, and ascended with Christ, and seated with Christ. He made all those words up. They're made up words in Greek that didn't exist before. There's also a word that was made up called harmalipi. 
And it's a, it's a unique word for Christians to describe our mourning. Harmalipi, best way to describe it, is this. My son Atticus spills his juice and he begins to weep, tears streaming down his face, mourning over what was lost. But then my wife is so good to sweep in and make him laugh within a second. With tears coming down his cheeks, still actively rolling, he's laughing and giggling. That's harmalipi. We are mourning our sin and the sin of the world, and yet when we mourn, Christ comes and comforts us and gives us his joy. You can see this in David in Psalm chapter 51. It's his great psalm of confession. And he says there in verse 8, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Because of my confession to you, my mourning my sin, I've been like one whose bones are crushed, but God comes and lets him rejoice. And then he says later, I think it's in verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In that psalm, David's confessing and mourning his sin, and yet he's also finding joy in the sin. Harmalipi, or Christian, this is why I'm calling it joyful mourning, or blessed mourning. It is not like the world. It is something that leads us, when we see our sin and mourn it and grieve it, it leads us to confession and repentance. And confession and repentance then leads to joy. When I come to Christ, when I come to the Father, when I come to, when the Spirit convicts me of my sin and I confess it, I get it off, and I say I'm turning from that, He in its place gives me joy. So, in a sense, mourning, repentance, and confession, these are the Christian's Prozac for the soul. And one wonders if the reason we have depression growing at alarming rates in our nation is because we no longer confess our sins and repent of them. Number one, a lot of people don't go to church anymore. Number two, a lot of churches don't talk about sin. They don't spend time confessing their sins. If you forgot, we pray at four o'clock and we have confession every single week. We confess our sins before God because this is a virtue Mourning our sin before God. And he gives us joy. Number three, verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is not weakness. People often think, oh, you're so meek, I can rule right over you. What what meekness is, is it is the most powerful of strengths anyone can possess because it's the mastery over one's self. That's meekness. It's mastery over oneself. Some fool hits me and I hit him back. I think I'm strong and powerful, huh? No. All I did was admit I have no control over myself because if someone hits me, I'm just going to hit him back. I'm a reactionary being. That's not meekness. Meekness possesses inherently power and it doesn't have to flaunt it. It doesn't have to show it off. Meekness comes as a fruit of our mourning. When we see we're poor in spirit and we mourn our sin, we grow in this strength, this quiet inner strength. Here's an example of what it can look like. One person is insulted. He feels the sting of the insult and remains quiet. That's meekness. Rather than saying, I know you are, but what am I? Or some more sophisticated comeback. But a step beyond that is someone insults me and I stay quiet, but then I also rejoice over the humility of the insult. 
I just experienced humility. Praise the Lord. Wow, that's meekness. One step beyond that, I don't answer back. Some sarcasm. I am rejoicing in the humility I experience. And then I weep over the wrongdoing of the sinner. I weep over his sin. That's total forgetfulness of self. That's what meekness looks like in the face of attack. Jesus was perfect in meekness. When he goes to the cross, he does not swear revenge. He does not curse his attackers. He receives it, which is the greatest power in the world. Mastery over self. The martyrs, if you look at the martyrs of the church, all of them mimic Christ in their death. And so much so that many pagans were converted upon watching the power of martyrs who can receive the vicious blows and have so much self-mastery through the power of Christ that they say, that's great. I'm sorry that you have to act this way. That sin has controlled your life so much. Meekness is a true power and it's so lacking in our world. We mock the meek in our world. How do we get meekness? We find in Christ our steadfastness. That no one's comment, that no one's evil, that no one's insult can shake me from my steadfastness in Christ. Number four, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, our fourth virtue. Notice how Jesus puts it in terms of hungering thirsting, being satisfied. Because what he is saying is our desire for righteousness must out-devour our desire for food. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Because I have quite a desire for food. Every day, actually. Our desire for righteousness? How many of us say, I cannot wait to gain more righteousness. I cannot wait to do righteousness. I cannot wait to see righteousness. I just... Frolic and righteous. No, we're thinking, all right, breakfast, coffee. I'm in a bad mood if I don't get my coffee. Or why is the waiter taking so long? What if we were in a bad mood because there's not enough righteousness? What if we hungered and thirst after righteousness the same way? When Jesus says righteousness, what he means is a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature. That's righteousness. A whole person behavior that accords with his nature. Unlike the Pharisees, skin-deep righteousness. On the outside, we look all pure. He's saying a whole person that accords with God's nature has to go beyond skin-deep, has to go into the heart, has to go into our entire being. This hungers and thirsts for God's nature, for his character. That's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. More of him in my life. More of his nature and his qualities in my life. We often struggle with junk food cravings like sin, vices, and passions. And passions are things that aren't necessarily sins, but they can easily stir up sins within us. Some of us hunger and thirst for the news, like we're dying. I promise you, brothers and sisters, that is not giving you virtue. It is not. Know what's happening and move toward righteousness. Hunger and thirst for that which will actually fill you. 
Some of us hunger and thirst for food. We hunger and thirst for possessions. We hunger and thirst for so much junk. Just live on potato chips for a week and tell me how you feel. But that's how we're living spiritually. We must feed our soul. But the problem is we have too much of self. We're not hungry for righteousness. We're not thirsty because there's so much of me. So much of me. And often eating food is so much of me. I eat more than I need. I eat things that aren't actually good for me because I want it. But if we're poor in spirit, if we joyfully mourn our sin, and if we're meek, I have completely emptied me out of my heart. And now there's lots of room to hunger and thirst. I'm starving because I'm no longer eating my selfishness. I'm starving for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of diets in the world and a lot of people who swear by their diets and hold to them literally religiously. They don't mess up for a day, or if they do, they mourn like they're sinning. What if we had a diet for the soul? And what if we took that as seriously? We are so famished in the soul. So famished in the soul. If we could see our souls, we would abhor them more than we abhor our own bodies, which most of us abhor. Fifth virtue of Christ's likeness is mercy in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy has been a mystery to me for most of my life. And then I was confounded when I saw it in the Gospels, mostly because I had to look at this. Mercy is bowing low to relieve the consequences of sin. How about that? Mercy is bowing low to relieve the consequences of sin. And Christ bowed so low to relieve the consequences of the sinners in the world around him that people often confused him as one of them. That's mercy. It's getting right into where the hurt is to alleviate it. Jesus said that he desires mercy more than sacrifice. He said that twice in his Gospels, as he's eating with sinners one time, and as his disciples are called sinners by the Pharisees another time. Don't you know, Hosea 6.6 6 said, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. More than your religious works, I want to see mercy flowing out of your life. Bowing low to relieve the consequences of sin. Think about in um, Matthew, the two blind men that follow Jesus, they say, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. What are they crying for? Relieve us of our blindness. It's misery. Take it away. They're not saying, oh, judge, withhold your judgment from us. They're saying, help us. Mercy is a cry for help because you're in a bad place. One area that we can improve on in mercy other than looking for where there is need and hurt in the world and bowing low to meet it, is in our remembrance of wrongs. We want to hold people in their misery by remembering what they've done to us. That is not merciful. We prayed after our confession earlier this evening, Lord, you are gracious and merciful. You do not hold our sins against us. Merciful does not have a recollection, a remembrance, a withholding of wrongs. Mercy lets it go. Do you want to hear an amazing quote about remembrance of wrongs? 
This is um, John of Sinai. He was, uh, I think, 6th, 7th century monk. He, he wrote this. The remembrance of injuries is the completion of anger. Whew. The custodian of sins. Enmity of uprightness. Destruction of virtues. Venom for the soul. A worm in the mind. Disgrace of prayer. Ceasing of entreaty, lack of love, a pin fastened in the soul. A joyless feeling beloved in the tenderness of bitterness, unceasing sin, vigilant iniquity, and constant ill will. Ouch! That's what happens when I hold on to the wrongs of others and I remember them. Oh, but mercy lets go, and mercy meets people in their misery. And seeks to relinquish it. That's why we cry to God all the time. Lord, have mercy on us. Number six. Sixth virtue of Christ-likeness is purity of heart in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. The heart is not the seat of emotions. That's often what people in the West say. The heart's where we feel everything. That's not it. The heart is actually just your inner person. It's your inner person. It's the core of your soul. It includes your mind and your rational thinking. That's the heart. When we think of purity, we often think of like a beautiful flower, untouched. It's pure. There's no spot on it. There's no blemish. It's pure. Okay, yes, purity includes abstinence from wrongs. That's true. But purity is not just a passive position of getting out of the way. Purity is an active engagement in focusing the mind, focusing the wants of your heart upon God, upon his goodness and his beauty. Purity is an active resting of the heart on God. That's what purity looks like. If you think about it, your heart wants what it wants. Regardless of what I say I want, I might say, I am a baseball fanatic. But if you actually looked at my life, I just kind of like baseball. I haven't gone to games in a couple years. I don't even subscribe to cable so that I can watch the games of my favorite team. I occasionally will listen on the radio and look at the scores. But you can't say that my heart is in line with what I say. I love baseball. I actually overstate that, I think. I'm real, as I look at my life, I don't love it the way most people say they love things. My heart and my words are not in alignment. People say they love God, but you look at their lives and what they watch has nothing to do with building them up in Christ. And the things that they pursue, the things that they buy, purity rests the heart in the goodness and the beauty of God. Brothers and sisters, the heart leads their lives. Because the heart wants, and the heart reaches, and the heart grabs. And the way to think of heaven and hell is the reward for what the heart spent its life pursuing. If I spend my life pursuing God, of course heaven is the reward of the pursuit of God. If I spend my life pursuing earthly vanities, of course hell, because it's the place of earthly vanities. That's why purity of heart is important, that in the core of our being, our inner self, it rests on the goodness and the beauty of God. Purity. We need a detox. We need a detox and a cleanse. That means we need to get rid of some things and put some nutrients in. Here's some ideas. Beatitudes 1 through 5, the first five virtues. They will detox you real quick. 
Tears. That's kind of the morning. Tears of repentance will cleanse us. How about all-night vigils, praying all night like Christ did? Woo, that will detox you. Prayer, putting some nutrients in. Fasting, a little detox and a little bit of, a little bit of more focus on God. Frequent study of God's word. And how about this? Watch what you watch and what you listen to. Because you don't want to feed the heart the wrong desires. The pure in heart will see God. Virtue number seven of Christ-likeness. Peacemaking, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice that this is not peacekeeping. A lot of us like to think we're peacemakers. We're like, I just try not to splash water into the boat. I don't make waves. I'm a peacekeeper. You're just a passive being who might as well be a wallflower. Peacemaking moves into conflict. Peacemaking says, there's no peace, I will bring peace. A peacekeeper says, no thank you, I'm staying where the peace is. Christians are peacemakers, which means sometimes people get upset with us. It doesn't mean that you're always going to have success in making everybody calm. In fact, mostly we're probably going to rile people up. But we're seeking to bring peace in our midst. It starts here. I must be at peace with God. Then I can be at peace with others so that I can then third, bring peace between others. That's what Christ looks like. There's a great story of St. Theodosius the Great. He was in the 5th century. I, by the way, you might notice I've been reading a lot of the old guys lately because there's some rich stuff in there. And listen to this. You don't hear modern people talking like this. St. Theodosius the Great one time saw two people, two brothers quarreling. And he threw himself at their feet and refused to get up until they reconciled. That's peacemaking. And that's a virtue of Christ-likeness. That's also very hard. Notice we're getting higher up the ladder. How do we develop peacemaking in our lives? Start identifying what is praiseworthy in people, in situations, and in things. Start identifying what's praiseworthy. We so often complain and grumble. You'll never be a peacemaker. I've not known a single peacemaker who's a grumbler and a complainer. Remember Moses in the wilderness? Oh boy, the Lord loved him. Peacemaking, start by identifying what is praiseworthy in everything around you. The last Christ-like virtue, number eight, the joyful acceptance of persecution is in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, the next, verse 11, and we've already read that, 11 through 12, expounds on that, because this is the last one plus one, because it's the climax, this is the ultimate virtue, and it's also a result of the other seven virtues. The world does not like Christ-likeness. We look at these and think, well, if the whole society lived like this, it it would be heaven on earth, wouldn't it? It would be. But the problem is, fallen humans don't look at these and say, we want to be like you. They look at you and say, we want to kill you. That's what they did to Christ. He modeled all of these. They killed him. The world is not like Christ-likeness. So if you, when we develop these virtues and they shine in our lives, expect people to mock you, to say you shouldn't act that way. That's not what an American does. That's not what a human with a backbone does. Expect it. 
Persecution is always demonic. Persecution first tries to hinder your soul. The demons will work against us to keep us from going in Christ. It's doing a great job in America. And when that fails, or when they get the opportunity, they will then launch harm on the body. It's demonic. Though people are the ones that hurt Christians, we must see it is the presence of Satan behind that. It's always demonic. Persecution is not always torture and chains. We don't see that in our nation. Sometimes we look at this beatitude, we're like, okay, we'll just skip on because we don't have to deal with this one. Well, right now we're dealing with it like this. Misrepresentation in the media. When's the last time you saw a movie or the news or a magazine article or the newspaper which portrayed Christians in a heroic good light? It's been a long time. We're usually being being pointed at for our faults. We are horribly misrepresented in the media. Um, There's a secular bias in our culture. If there's anything between Christianity and the non-Christians, it always weighs toward the non-Christians to the point that they're starting to impose thinking on us that says you cannot think that way, at least not in the public square. Um, How about the names? Names were called intolerant, narrow-minded, repressive, haters, and radicals. This is how persecution is being experienced now. But brothers and sisters, let's not kid ourselves, it's coming. I don't have a lot of details on this, but I was hearing someone share all of the ways the military has completely stripped God out of its presence. You cannot even put a Bible verse on your weapon anymore. Um, I was hearing that Catholic bishops who write letters to their Catholic soldiers, the chaplain is no longer allowed to read it to the Catholic soldiers. And there's, there's so many things I had heard, it broke my heart. That's the military. Um, I, I'm not in it. I'm not very involved in it. I can't give you a lot more personally. But how about, think about the COVID restrictions. Is it persecution on the church? Mm, I think the government is trying to just genuinely keep everyone safe. But here's what we're seeing, is we're seeing the seed of what's yet to come. Because they're labeling churches non-essential. Because we prioritize the body and the consumption of goods rather than the soul and virtues. This is essential. This is really essential. I was at Target. You remember where the governor recently said you can't be in church anymore? The the second time he said it, very recently. So we're not supposed to be here. Um, It was that weekend. I happened to have to go to Target in Redlands, the worst Target in the world, because you always dread it. Everyone and their mom is at Target on Saturday. I don't know how it works. But I was in there, and I I was appalled that the governor would say nothing to Target because there was literally no social distancing you're bumping into people, it's so crowded. The lines to even be checked out are wrapping around the store, and no one's six feet apart. They're all pressing in so no one cuts. And I'm thinking, look at this! How is this any more dangerous? You guys are spread out. You're stationary. You're not going around grabbing, touching things, and then picking your nose, and putting it on this jacket over there, and touching the produce, and I don't like that one, and sitting in line with all these and complaining. Sorry. COVID restrictions, we're starting to see the seeds of how government thinks and what may yet to come in the future about church. Um, how about LGBTQ affirmation? No one has to affirm them yet. It's just politically, or it's socially and politically pressured. Oh, you're a hater if you don't affirm. The day will come, brothers and sisters, when Christians will have trouble finding work because work will mandate that you are completely tolerant of every single lifestyle or you don't have a job. 
Schools will stop accepting applications for Christians because, or unless you pinch incense to the Caesar of LGBTQ. This is coming. It's not far away. And it's already in place in some of the biggest corporations. My dad even told that to me. He said, yes, I see it beginning to happen. He works for a very big corporation, but it always trickles down. Um, okay, I'm, I need to finish. So, Oh, yes, that was it. That was the last beatitude. There you go. Okay, so let's wrap this up. Sometimes I, get, I just get lost in where I am. Um, okay, so these are the beatitudes of Christ-likeness. They're the virtues of Christ-likeness, and it's a ladder, and we ascend up and up, and the more we attain each virtue upon virtue, the more Christ-like we look and expect, the more the world will not like you. But there's two positive results as well. You become salt, you become light. This is what the world desperately needs. But furthermore, brothers and sisters, you become salt to yourself. The virtues preserve me from the rots of my vices and sins. The church is rotting itself out like a cavity. But virtue will sow salt in our midst and preserve our witness. It will also shine and make clarity in our lives. Now we know why we live. Now we know how to respond to the situation of those people. And we will see people seeing the light and like bugs in the dark coming to it and saying, what are these good works? You are flourishing while we're all suffering and frustrated and lost. Tell us who your God is. They don't do that because our doctrines are so defined clearly. No! They do that because Christ just said in verse 16, they see, they see like light your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So some will hate you, but the rest will find Christ through you. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, and work in us your virtues of poverty of spirit, of blessed mourning, of meekness, of hunger and thirst for righteousness, of mercy.